Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1995, 29-year-old Barry Minko walked into a lavish dining room. The floors were marble, the table at its center a rich mahogany, and Barry was getting whiplash. He just spent the past seven years in a six by eight concrete box behind bars. In comparison, the marble, the mahogany, they felt perverse, wrong even. And yet, there Barry stood. The mobster who had summoned him sat at the far end of the table, his face in shadow. But his eyes, they were bright and fixed on Barry. You look good, Barry. Prison has preserved you well. How's your dad doing? Barry responded with the truth. His father had just had his third stroke. He was in a nursing home that he hated, but for obvious reasons, Barry couldn't afford an in-house caregiver. The mobster took his words in. Then he pulled out a briefcase and slid it across the table. It stopped right in front of Barry, like it was on rails. The mobster explained, that's my welcome home present. It's seed money for whatever business you want to start. And I'll be your silent minority partner. Unable to help himself, Barry yanked open the briefcase. Inside was enough money to take care of his dad, start a new business, and silence the naysayers who saw him as nothing more than a criminal, a bum. Barry went to pick up the briefcase, then he stopped. He realized that taking the money would mean that his naysayers were right. He'd prove that he was still the same punk who was willing to take shortcuts. So, as the furious mobster watched, Barry got up and walked out of the lavish house and into his uncertain future. At least, that's the scene Barry Minko would like you to believe happened. The mobster, the briefcase, his noble refusal, they were all painstakingly detailed in Minko's autobiography to prove that he had changed. 
The book insisted that he was no longer the same guy who stole millions from investors, lied to his friends, and robbed his grandmother. He was a Christian, a fraud buster for the FBI. In other words, Barry Minko was finally a good man. But what do you think? Are you buying what he's selling? Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we discussed Barry Minko, a teenage con artist who used his carpet cleaning business as a front for a Ponzi scheme. Barry ultimately got involved with the mob to keep up with the high interest payments he promised his debtors. This week, we'll detail how Barry's fraud was discovered, landing him behind bars. Then we'll explore how he reinvented himself as a pastor and fraud consultant for the FBI, only to once again engage in illegal financial activities. In 1985, 19-year-old Barry Minko had sold all of Reseda, California on a seductive story. It was the tale of a 16-year-old genius who built a successful carpet cleaning business, Z-Best, right out of his father's garage. Unfortunately, Barry's inspiring tale was pure fiction. In reality, Z-Best was built not out of hard work and ingenuity, but rather from thousands of dollars in high-interest loans. Furthermore, Z-Best was little more than a Ponzi scheme. Despite the fraudulent nature of his actions, Barry didn't care. He was addicted to his counterfeit story, and he intended to keep the charade going at all costs. So when his Ponzi scheme ran out of money, he decided to take on a $100,000 loan this time, Barry's debtor was a mobster. In his autobiography, Barry referred to the man by the pseudonym Ron Knox. After making the deal with Knox, Barry almost immediately regretted his decision. Days after Barry accepted his money, Knox began periodically dropping in on Z-Best's main branch unannounced. Knox's constant presence caused his employees to suspect that the company was involved with the mafia, decimating morale. Even worse, Knox began telling anybody who would listen that he owned the company. Fortunately, just when Barry thought he'd never rid himself of the mobster, he caught a break. Out of the blue, a man named Charlie Hunter called Barry and asked to pay him a visit. 
In his autobiography, Barry stated that Charlie was an old friend, though it remained unclear how the two ever became acquainted. Without prompting, Charlie told Barry that he knew some guys who could help solve his Ron Knox issue for good. Barry was startled by the offer, but he was desperate, so he accepted. The next day, inside Charlie Hunter's living room, Barry met two men. He used pseudonyms for both, calling one Stanley and the other Robert. Upon introductions, Barry learned that Robert was a stock market genius. As for Stan, he had deep connections with the big mafia families on the East Coast. Barry knew Knox also answered to the East Coast. The three men offered to help Barry do three things. First, they would get rid of Knox by providing Barry with a bodyguard and smoothing things over with the family back east. Secondly, they would provide Barry with a $2 million credit line that would free him from relying on Knox's predatory loans. Lastly, they offered to help Barry take Z-Best public, allowing it to trade on the stock market. This last offer was the most exciting. Barry would be able to raise money from investors without having to pay it back. Instead, in exchange for their money, investors would get shares in Z-Best. Barry was ecstatic. Without even waiting for them to ask, he offered to give the men a share of his profits in exchange for their generosity. Charlie, Robert, and Stanley gamely accepted his offer. At least, that's how Barry described the transaction in his autobiography. However, an LA Times article by journalist Barry Stavro asserts that profits weren't the only thing Barry provided the East Coast crew. On the contrary, Stavro alleged that Barry allowed Robert, Stan, and Charlie, and the rest of their associates from New York, to use Z-Best as a front to launder large organized crime profits from narcotic trafficking. The East Coast crew made good on their promises. First, Knox disappeared from the halls of Z-Best. Then, Phil showed up. Muscular and imposing, he followed Barry everywhere. Lastly, Stan gave Barry access to a $2 million credit line. With his new funds, Barry immediately paid off his outstanding loans. Then he purchased a two-story mansion in one of Reseda's swankiest neighborhoods. Three months after purchasing his mansion, Z-Best shares traded on the stock market. Barry was able to take his company public so expediently because the East Coast crew helped him structure a reverse merger. Most companies go public by getting an investment bank to underwrite an initial public offering, also known as an IPO. This process is lengthy and requires the intense scrutiny of an investment bank's due diligence. A reverse merger, on the other hand, solely required a private company to merge with a smaller shell company that was already listed on the stock exchange. The merger allowed the private company to go public by default. This was the process that the East Coast crew helped Barry take advantage of. And Barry was ecstatic. Pulling off the reverse merger at 19 made him the youngest person to ever have his company go public. He was the Wunderkind once more.
And even though the stock was only trading at 50 cents a share, Barry's take of 6 million shares meant that at 19, he was a millionaire. Just one year later, in the summer of 1986, the good times ground to a halt. After opening up three more Z-Best branches, 20-year-old Barry Minko had depleted the $2 million credit line that the East Coast crew provided him. Barry had no idea how to pay all the money he owed back. Then, one of his associates told him that he could raise $15 million. All he would have to do was find an investment bank to help him structure an additional stock offering. Though Barry was tempted by the money, he was torn. Unlike the reverse merger, a public stock offering required an investment bank to audit his entire company. In the process, Barry feared that the bankers might discover that ZBest profitable restoration projects didn't exist. Even more concerning, a public stock offering would mean that Barry was defrauding the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. Unlike pawning his grandmother's stolen jewelry or filching a couple of money orders from Joe's Quickie Mart, defrauding the SEC meant major time behind bars. Barry didn't think he had the stomach for it. And then, just as he was about to turn the offer down, his associate said the magic words. If Barry undertook a public stock offering, he would get to star in statewide commercials to entice investors. The prospect of everybody in California not just knowing his story, but recognizing his face was irresistible. So Barry agreed. He would do the public offering, risk the scrutiny of investment bankers, and defraud the SEC. And in the process, Barry Minko would become more than a man, more than a god even. He would become a celebrity. Over the next six months, with the help of Stan and Robert from the East Coast crew and a crooked accountant named Carl, Barry whipped up the best cooked books known to man. And in December 1986, all his hard work finally paid off. The investment bankers signed off on his books, and Barry's 15 million public offering quickly sold out. Furthermore, after he hired a public relations company to hype ZBest, the stock jumped from $4 a share to almost $18. This meant that ZBest was worth just under $300 million. As a result, 21-year-old Barry was worth over $100 million. But that wasn't even the best part. The best part was that in April 1987, Barry was invited on Oprah. Paul McCartney had been on Oprah, Tom Cruise, and now Barry Minko would join their rarefied company. He'd made it. He'd spun a fictitious story and ridden it all the way to the top. But just one month after appearing on the show, his story took a turn and everything came crashing down. 
coming up. Barry Minko's fraud finally comes to light. Now, back to the story. In 1987, 21-year-old Barry Minko was on top of the world. His public offering from his carpet cleaning company Z-Best was a smashing success. This meant that at 21, Barry was worth a whopping $100 million. And then, one morning in May, Barry woke up to a ringing phone. Thomas Meyer, the PR genius behind Z-Best stock's meteoric rise, was on the other end of the line. His voice was cold as he asked, Have you read your morning paper? Barry hadn't. But a few minutes later, after running outside, he saw his face on the cover of the LA Times. The headline read, Behind WizKid is a trail of false credit card billings. Barry's blood ran cold. He raced to Z-Best offices in his Ferrari. As he drove, he told himself that he could still fix things. After all, the credit card scam was ancient history. So long as nobody knew that Z-Best restoration projects didn't exist, Barry would be fine. On arriving in his office, Barry told his secretary to call the press. He would give an impromptu interview disputing the article and clearing his name. Because if there was one thing Barry Minko knew how to do, it was sell an angle. Minutes later, Barry's confidence was put to the test as dozens of reporters, cameramen and radio people crowded into his office, their cameras flashing. The first reporter asked, Mr. Minko, can you comment on why your stock went down four points today? Barry was already caught off guard. He had no idea his stock had dropped. That $4 decline meant that his net worth had just taken a $24 million hit. And before breakfast, no less. It only got worse from there. The next reporter asked, Is it true that the Securities and Exchange Commission has ordered a formal investigation of Z-Best? Again, Barry was shocked. He shifted forward, ready to lambast the reporter, deny the claims and blame the credit card charges on unscrupulous contractors. But then a third reporter said, Mr. Minko, in your prospectus it states that you completed a $7 million restoration project in Sacramento. But when I checked to see if Z-Best had filed any permits for such construction, none were found. In fact, Z-Best doesn't even possess a contractor's license. Can you explain this? Barry couldn't. In fact, the minute he heard the words restoration project, he knew it was over. His company's non-existent restorations were the threads that, if pulled, would unravel the whole scheme. So upon the utterance of that question, he knew that the story of Barry Minko, the Wunderkind, was no more. In January of 1988, 22-year-old Barry was indicted on 57 counts of racketeering, money laundering, embezzlement, mail fraud, securities fraud, bank fraud, and tax evasion. During the four-month trial, Minko continued to spin his story. He insisted that he had acted under duress after being threatened by members of organized crime families from New York. But Judge Dikran Tevrizian 
didn't buy it. Instead, he told Barry, You're dangerous because you have this gift of gab, but you don't have a conscience. The jury's verdict reflected a similar conclusion, and on December 14, 1988, Minko was found guilty on all 57 counts, ordered to pay $26 million in restitution to the victims that he defrauded, and sentenced to 25 years in prison. But only seven years later, in 1995, 29-year-old Barry was released from federal prison. Thanks to his good behavior in jail, his 25-year sentence was reduced. In the meantime, Barry claimed that he discovered the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So though Barry was born into a Jewish family, he became a born-again Christian. As a reflection of his commitment to his new faith, Barry began pursuing a master's in divinity studies from jail. This meant that upon his release, he obtained an internship at a local church called Rocky Peak. Despite the fact that this internship wouldn't pay him much, Barry claimed that he turned down a briefcase full of cash from the mob so that he could pursue a godly path exclusively. Perhaps it was this same piety that convinced 21-year-old Teresa Barker, an Arizona State senior, to marry Minko shortly after his release from jail. It's unclear the exact reasoning behind Teresa's decision. What is clear is that mere months after serving time for grievous financial crimes, Barry's new story about himself was convincing enough to garner him a new job and a young bride. In between his stints working for Rocky Peak and settling into his new marriage, Barry had to periodically meet with his parole officer, Frank Gula. During one such meeting, Gula invited Barry to speak during the FBI's upcoming Fraud Day presentation. Barry wanted to stay on the good side of the feds, so he agreed to give a speech that would help the FBI catch guys like him a lot faster. With verve and energy, Barry detailed to the gathered agents how he had pulled off one of the biggest Ponzi schemes to date. Since he peppered his talk with a generous amount of self-deprecation and remorse, his audience was charmed. So much so that at speech's end, Barry was barraged with more invitations. First, he traveled to FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, where he trained young agents to spot fraud. Then he filmed a video series to teach auditors how to catch perpetrators. Lastly, Barry spoke about fraud at various accountant seminars around the country, netting between $1,200 and $1,500 per speech. All these activities allowed him to add yet another laurel to his ever-evolving story of redemption. Not only was he a born-again Christian, but Barry could also honestly claim to be an instrumental part of the FBI's fraud prevention strategy. In 1996, 30-year-old Barry Minko added one more plaudit to his resume, a Master's of Divinity graduate degree. With his brand new diploma in hand, Barry applied to be the pastor of Community Bible Church in San Diego. After sending in his application, 
he knew that his past as an ex-convict might pose a problem to the church's hiring committee. So, one night, Barry called up Tony Biondelillo, one of the decision-makers. In his book, Barry didn't include the exact details of what he said, but it's likely that he gave Biondelillo a taste of his new story, the one that insisted his ex-con days were behind him and he was ready to dedicate his life to God. Whatever he said, it was effective. The former inmate beat out 200 other applicants for the job of senior pastor at Community Bible Church. In 1997, 31-year-old Barry Minko moved to San Diego to start his new job. In his role, he delivered fiery sermons about forgiveness, provided marriage counseling, and generally acted as a source of support for his congregation. Simultaneous with his church activities, Barry continued to travel the country to give fraud seminars. He also did a daily radio show where he gave listeners advice on the investment opportunities they were considering. Barry didn't allow his radio show or seminars to detract from the effort he put into his sermons. As a result, a year and a half after undertaking the senior pastor role, he managed to double his congregation's size, to the delight of church officials. Unfortunately, Barry's wife, Teresa, wasn't similarly impressed. According to Barry's book, all the different commitments he was juggling caused him to neglect his young wife. So in 1998, Teresa filed for divorce and left. And Barry was humiliated. Teresa's abandonment did not align with his redemption narrative. He was desperate to regain control of his story. As a result, he decided that if he couldn't be a successful husband, then he would craft a new mythos. One about a former con man who redeemed himself with a brand new, successful business. Barry knew he couldn't go back to carpet cleaning. So, based off of a listener's suggestion he received during his radio show about fraud, he decided to start an internet commerce website, right as the dot-com bubble was at its fullest. In early 1999, 33-year-old Barry Minko set up a website to sell tires online. After having seen one dot-com millionaire after another profiled on CNBC, Barry was certain that he could make a killing out of his new venture. To that end, he convinced his mother, the producer of his fraud education radio show, and an undisclosed third party to invest thousands of dollars in his internet gamble. Barry promised them that the website would be such a huge success that in 18 months, they'd be bought out by a big tire chain. As he was seducing his investors with stories of quick riches, Barry was feeding himself another tale. While he worked 80-hour weeks, he told himself that he would soon be on top again. He would show Teresa what a massive error she made when she walked away from him. Ultimately, both stories were wrong. By mid-2000, the internet bubble burst, and Barry was forced to close his website down in disgrace. Then he scrambled, taking on several weeks' worth of fraud-speaking engagements so that he could try and pay his website investors back. According to Barry's book, the strain of his divorce dot-com failure 
and numerous speaking engagements caused him to begin having panic attacks. This fraught mental state negatively affected his sermons, and soon the elders of the church called Barry in for an emergency meeting. As he sat down with church officials, Barry was certain he was about to get fired. Instead, the elders offered him a lifeline. They told Barry that his sermons were stellar, but his decision-making needed work. To that end, they paired him with retired pastor, Dr. Jean French. In weekly counseling sessions, French acted as Barry's mentor and advisor, talking him through his painful divorce as well as his recent dot-com failure. In addition, French encouraged Barry to continue his fraud prevention work. He believed that fraud deterrence was as much a part of Barry's ministry as his pastorship at Community Bible Church. Shortly after his meeting with Dr. French, Barry was approached by accountant Steve Austin and technology maven Sam Kephart. They told him they were huge fans of his work. They believed no one could spot fraud better than him. And since millions of people lost money to financial schemes every year, they thought Barry could use his skills for the greater good. When Barry asked them to elaborate, they pitched him the rough strokes of what would become the Fraud Discovery Institute. Sam and Steve envisioned FDI as a business that would help to locate, publicize, and stop hard frauds in progress. In closing, the two men pitched themselves as equal partners. In that moment, Barry recalled Dr. French's words that fraud prevention was an equally important component of his ministry. In light of that, Sam and Steve's proposition seemed like divine intervention. God was clearly pushing him towards this noble calling. And who was Barry to deny the will of God? At least, that's the story Barry spun in his autobiography, Cleaning Up. In reality, at around the same time Barry helped found the Fraud Discovery Institute, he was currently engaging in fraud himself. According to an article on FBI.gov, over the course of his time at Community Bible Church, Barry embezzled more than $3 million of money intended as church donations. He did this in a number of creative ways. On one occasion, he tricked a widower into making a $75,000 donation for a hospital in Sudan to honor his wife after she died of cancer. Only there was no hospital, and Barry pocketed the money. In a separate situation, Barry stole $300,000 from a widowed grandmother who had previously earmarked the funds for her teenage granddaughter's college education. It was even reported that when Barry wasn't directly ripping off his own parishioners, he forged signatures on church checks and used funds drawn on church accounts for his personal benefit. Barry even used some of this money to help establish the Fraud Discovery Institute. It's clear from his actions that to Barry, being a pastor was merely the perfect means to an end. It whitewashed his past as a conman, lulling his victims into a false sense of security, thus permitting him to continue perpetrating his crimes unchecked. This allowed Barry to begin his new chapter, 
one that would see him abuse his leadership position at FDI for his own personal enrichment. Coming up, Barry positions himself as a forthright fraud buster. Now, back to the story. In 2001, 35-year-old Barry Minko started the Fraud Discovery Institute, ostensibly so he could stop frauds in progress, thereby saving investors millions. However, unbeknownst to Barry's new partners, part of the funds he used to begin FTI were embezzled from church coffers. Barry got away with this act of deception because both his partners and church officials trusted the narrative that he had changed. Barry's performance of repentance was equally effective in court. In August 2002, Judge Dikran Tevrizian granted Barry an early release from his probation and a total dismissal of his $26 million restitution order. Then, the same judge who had told Barry he didn't have a conscience 14 years earlier now encouraged him. During his probation dismissal hearing, Judge Tevrizian said, We have a problem facing our country with corporate dishonesty. Go and investigate some of these frauds and bring them to justice. With those words of support from a former detractor, it was clear that Barry's con was complete. Like a magician pulling off a complex sleight of hand, Barry had distracted people with his expressions of remorse and displays of contrition. This diversionary tactic was so effective that even the very judge trained to spot criminals was unable to see the con man standing right in front of him. So, with the judge's blessing, Barry turned his attention full-time to the Fraud Discovery Institute. Now, he would act as both judge and executioner. One of the first frauds Barry uncovered was a Ponzi scheme disguised as a financing firm called MX Factors. The company first came to 37-year-old Barry's attention in May 2003 when his friend, Lane Biggs, dropped their investor prospectus on Barry's desk. Biggs wanted to invest $200,000 in the scheme, but first, he wanted Barry's opinion on whether MX Factors was legitimate or not. The company financed payments for construction companies performing work on government contracts. The executives at MX Factors claimed that this lucrative enterprise allowed them to offer interested investors a 12% return on their money every 90 days or a 57% return annually. It was these inflated returns, as well as the showy extravagance of MX Factor's glossy investor prospectuses, that aroused Barry's suspicions. He promised Biggs that he would do some digging into MX Factor's and its CEO, Richard Harkless. Barry's own Ponzi scheme had been built on the supposed profits from phony restoration projects. As a result, the first thing Barry decided to verify was the touted profitability of MX Factors. The only way to do this was to track down MX Factors customers, the construction companies they were supposedly lending money to. However, even after spending two days calling construction companies, Barry was only able to locate one company that confirmed they used MX Factors services. Barry wondered how MX Factors could boast profits in the millions 
if they only had one customer. His suspicions peaked. Barry called three other financing companies who were structured similarly to MX Factors. He asked them if the 57% annual returns MX Factors promised investors made sense. All three of the business representatives confirmed that such returns were highly improbable. In his last piece of due diligence, Barry called the International Factoring Association, an official trade organization that most government contract financers belong to. However, when Barry asked officials at IFA if they had ever heard of Richard Harkless or MX Factors, they said that they had not. With all this information, Barry was able to put together a comprehensive report expressing his opinion that MX Factors was a fraudulent Ponzi scheme. He sent one copy of this report to Biggs, warning him not to invest. Then he sent another copy to the office of the United States Postal Inspection Service. The feds took Barry's allegations seriously, and after a thorough investigation, his suspicions were confirmed. Richard Harkless and his associates were accused of operating a Ponzi scheme that bilked investors out of over $33 million. Barry's involvement in the case was publicized in a subsequent LA Times article. After that, the FDI was deluged with similar cases. As a result, over the next three years, the company successfully partnered with federal agencies to expose 13 different Ponzi schemes by late 2005, saving investors from losing millions. Despite the benefits implied by this development, by 2005, 39-year-old Barry Minko still wasn't making any money from his fraud-busting activities. The feds were grateful and willing to investigate the crimes he alleged in his reports, but they didn't pay him for his intel. In fact, four years after starting FDI, the only revenue Barry earned through the company came from his continued fraud-speaking engagements. And soon, Barry began to chafe at the arrangement. That's likely the reason why, in 2006, 40-year-old Barry shifted his company's focus. Instead of investigating privately held establishments, he started targeting companies that traded publicly on the American Stock Exchange. According to a Fortune magazine article by journalist Roger Parloff, in 2006, Barry began targeting several public companies pursuing multi-level marketing strategies. As he had with the private companies he'd exposed, Barry gathered evidence he alleged incriminated these targets, and then he sent these fraud reports to his contacts at the FBI and SEC. There were just a few key differences in the way Barry handled publicly traded companies. The first difference was that in addition to sending reports to officials at the FBI and SEC, Barry also leaked his findings to the press. By 2006, Barry had built credibility by successfully exposing Ponzi schemes. As a result, his word carried clout. Thus, a critical report from him would immediately cause these companies' stock prices to plummet. This played into the second key difference in the way Barry handled publicly traded companies. With private companies he exposed, Barry couldn't profit from his findings in the stock market. Such was not the case 
with public companies. Prior to releasing his critical findings to the press, Barry would take a short position and sometimes short-sell the company he was targeting. Short-selling is what happens when an investor borrows shares and immediately sells them in the open market. They do this in the hopes that they can buy back the shares later at a lower price, return them to the lender, thus allowing them to pocket the difference. As a result, short-sellers only profit from a decline in a stock's price. By that same token, they risk losing money if the price goes up. However, Barry ran no such risk. He knew that releasing his critical findings would put downward pressure on each stock he targeted. Thus, his profits were basically guaranteed. On March 15, 2007, 41-year-old Barry targeted Usana, a company that sold diet products. Barry's leaked critical report caused Usana's stock to plummet 15% on the first day, and a total of 42% over the next month, wiping out millions of dollars of company value. When Usana sued Barry, stating that his attacks were riddled with exaggerations, half-truths and plainly false statements, and meant only to line his pockets, they lost. The U.S. District Court ruled that Barry's statements were protected under the laws of free speech. And, ultimately, Usana was forced to settle with Barry out of court. According to a San Diego Union-Tribune article, they paid him a substantial sum to stop his attacks. This was the third way in which Barry could enrich himself by targeting public companies, which wasn't available to him with private ones. In a bid to staunch their stock market bleeding, publicly traded companies would settle with Barry out of court. These settlements ranged in value from $100,000 to $300,000. In this vein, Barry was able to publicly present his tactics as a check on the harm perpetrated by corporate malfeasance. Privately, however, he was enriching himself by shorting the stock of the companies he targeted and continuing his attacks until said companies conceded to paying him a substantial settlement. In addition to Usana, Barry pursued a similar strategy to great success with Herbalife, which sells diet products, and New Skin, which makes skincare goods. However, the ease with which he was able to pull off this scheme while maintaining a public show of decency was a double-edged sword. It made Barry greedy. He likely began to feel as though he could get away with anything. Perhaps this is why in early 2009, 43-year-old Barry decided to go after his biggest target to date, the nation's largest home builder, Lenarcorp. According to a Wall Street Journal article by journalist Robbie Whelan, in January 2009, Barry released a report that criticized the accounting practices of home builder Lennar Corp. The report also made allegations of fraud against a Lennar executive. As was his usual practice, at around the same time Barry released his report, he took a $20,000 short position in the stock. Initially, everything seemed to be going according to plan as Lennar Corp's stock immediately plummeted 20%. 
Over the next two days, the company's market value dropped by $500 million, all off of the strength of Barry's word. However, unlike Usana, Herbalife, and Newskin, Lennar was a huge corporation. They weren't going to pay Barry to go away. On the contrary, Lennar decided to use the massive resources at their disposal to make Barry Minko regret the very day he learned of their existence. In late 2009, Lennar Corp sued Barry Minko for libel and extortion. Over the course of their suit's discovery, the depth of Barry's transgressions came to light. First, Barry's profiteering short position in Lennar Corp was exposed. Then it was revealed that Barry later bought the stock after having knocked $500 million off of its value. This private purchase meant that Barry believed Lennar Corp's share price would recover, contradicting his public statements that the company was fraudulent. Lastly, Lennar's counsel revealed that Barry utilized misappropriated church money to fund his Fraud Discovery Institute. Due to the findings, the court ruled in favor of Lennar, ordering Barry to pay the company nearly $584 million in damages. And Barry's problems weren't at an end. After the conclusion of the civil suit, he pleaded guilty to the charge of insider trading. And on July 21, 2011, Judge Patricia Seitz sentenced 45-year-old Barry to five years in prison. At the hearing, she stated that Barry was a very gifted person, but he had no moral compass. As for Barry, as he headed to jail with his redemption narrative finally revealed for the con it was, he was already spinning a new story. In 2012, 46-year-old Barry Minko spoke to Fortune journalist Roger Parloff. During the interview, Barry claimed that in 2006, he had become addicted to the painkiller OxyContin. He blamed the drug for his criminal actions, stating, This is a drug case. That's all it is. You think differently about things when you're on 1,400 milligrams of OxyContin a day. And that's the story behind the story. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Barry Minko, amongst the many sources we used, we found Cleaning Up by Barry Minko extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Con Artists was written by Obiageli Odemegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. 
I'm Alastair Murden. 